right, you can be seated. You turn to James chapter 4. Hope you've all had a good week. It's good to see some of our college students back in town too. All right, back in James again. Um, Last time we looked at James was back in August when we finished out chapter 3. We looked at a tale of two wisdoms. That was the kind of the theme of the last portion of chapter 3. James presented the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of the world. And yet again, he presented to us another test of genuine faith. And the important thing that I mentioned was that James wants us to apply godly wisdom to our personal lives and to relationships that we have. And I asked these questions kind of of us for us to think about. Is there peace in your home? Are you at peace with those in this church? If not, what kind of seed are you sowing? So if you're sowing worldly wisdom, you'll reap disorder in every evil thing. That's what James said in chapter 3, verse 16. On the other hand, if you sow God's wisdom, you'll reap peace. And that's how he closed out chapter 3. Today we're going to look at two more things. Uh, but we're looking, looking at two pictures of friendship. Friendship with the world, friendship with God. Now, all throughout this letter so far, James has been, been addressing the brothers. We see that repeatedly um, throughout the, the letter. And I believe that he's been directly speaking to his brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember, these are likely people that he knew very well, uh, likely members of his congregation in Jerusalem who had been scattered Uh, forced to leave Jerusalem um, during some persecution that broke out following the stoning of Stephen. But because he is comparing and contrasting true faith and false faith, he's also indirectly speaking to those who are not believers, who are living with false faith. So James is looking here at a group of people, and he knows that in that group of people who are Jewish people, In an assembly of the church, he knows that some of them are real and some of them are not. Some of them have living faith and some, as he said in chapter 2, have dead faith. Some of them are truly redeemed and some are not. Some have all the outward trappings of lovers of God, but none of the inward reality. Some of them are just playing a good game. And so this is what James is addressing and dealing with today. Now, in the last section of chapter 3, I believe that who he is addressing directly begins to shift. Begins to shift more towards those with a false faith. And by the time we get into the early verses of chapter 4, I think he is fully directing his words to those who are not redeemed, while indirectly speaking to those who are fellow believers. And I'm going to explain this more as we go along and kind of give my reasonings behind why I believe this to be true. Um, But let's start by reading together um, our passage today. We're going to look at uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. I've gotten old. I've had to move to reading glasses. It's sad. All right. Start with me in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. 
You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Let's pray. God, as we dig into this passage for a little while this morning, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you would soften hearts in the room of those listening online to hear what you have to say to us today through the preaching of your word. And God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. O God, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's dive into this. Um, Let's look at verse (coughs) 1. What was happening in this church amongst this body of believers was conflict. And it was happening because you had some people in the church who were deeply in love with God and other people who were deeply in love with the world. Now that right there is a recipe for trouble because you have people who love God trying to get along with people who love the world. People whose greatest priority it is to glorify God and other people whose greatest priority is to glorify themselves. This creates a recipe for disaster, a recipe for conflict. James says that their passions are at war with one another. The things that divide these two people are at war. And I think when you get to verse 2, the shift in who James is addressing is complete. His full attention has now shifted to the unbeliever. This is what he says in verse 2. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The desires of the unbeliever. The word desire here that James uses comes from two Greek words and it means in the mind. It's what you set your heart on. It's what you long for, what you think about. Now in the scriptures, we find both positive and negative uses of this word, both positive desires, negative desires. So here's some examples. Matthew 13, 17, um, Jesus, excuse me, is talking to his disciples. He's just um, shared the parable of the sower. And he says to the disciples, after he's given some explanation to them, he says, For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Longed, people longed to see. The same word is what James uses, their desire. Longed to see. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to keep this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus said this, 
in Luke twenty-two fifteen. I have earnestly desired, same word. Negative side of things, Paul says in Romans 13, 9, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Again, the same word, you shall not covet, it's the same word that James uses for desires. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says in Matthew five twenty eight. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That phrase lustful intent is the exact same word that James uses. When you go back to the Old Testament, it's the same word that's found in the Ten Commandments of you shall not covet. Um, And in in the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this is what Proverbs 21, 25 says. The desire of the sluggard kills him for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves. Same word there. But the righteous gives and does not hold back. Now, when James is talking here, I think some of this has to be seen as hyperbole. I don't think that you had people in this church murdering one another. What I do think is that James is again making reference to the Sermon on the Mount. If you'll remember as we've walked through this, he's made numerous Um, references to the Sermon on the Mount. Obviously, um, a significant teaching of Jesus that had a huge impact on his life. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 21? He said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So James is saying, you don't have the things that you desire or crave, and so you get angry. You covet what is not yours and you can't get it so you fight and you quarrel. Then he says you don't have because you don't ask. But even when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives in order to spend it on yourself, on your own desires, your own passions. I think again this points back to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, 7, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Now let's keep in mind that what, this is not Jesus saying here to his followers, here's the heavenly credit card. You go get whatever you want. Jesus is not a genie in the bottle. We rub the lamp and he pops out and gives us whatever we want. That's not what he's talking about here. Just a chapter before in Matthew 6.33, Jesus said, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you as well. When we pursue the desires of God, God's desires become our desires. And that's what we long for, and that's what he gives us. So James, moving on here, brings the hammer down with this next statement in verse 4. He says, You adulterous people. Now, talk about not beating around the bush. We've talked about this before too. James doesn't beat around the bush in this letter. He's very blunt at times. And here he is about as blunt as you can be. This is a stinging indictment. A stinging indictment against the people. Remember, he's talking to a Jewish audience and he's bringing in here imagery from the Old Testament. James is calling them an adulterous people against God who have forsaken him for the pleasures of the world. 
They would remember the book of Hosea where Israel is called an unfaithful wife of God. If you know much about the book of Hosea, the relationship of Hosea and his wife Gomer was a picture of the relationship of Israel and God. Israel was the covenant bride of God. And just as God was unfaithful to Hosea over and over again, so also was Israel unfaithful to God when they pursued other gods. Israel became an adulteress. This is also a term that Jesus used in Matthew 12. The Pharisees and the scribes came to him and asked him for a sign. And his reply to them was that an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. And he repeated himself again just a few chapters later in Matthew 16. So for Israel, because of their covenant relationship to God, to abandon God was to commit spiritual adultery, to be unfaithful to him. And that's precisely what Jesus, um, sorry, that, that's precisely what James is saying here. He's saying, you people have been unfaithful as Jews to the covenant that your people had with God. You are friends of the world. So James asked this question. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And then he makes a statement. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now again, I, I come back to what I said in the beginning. I believe that James is directing this whole section to those who are unbelievers. Why do I say that? Because I think James is not talking here about an accidental occasion where a believer might be doing something that he doesn't want to do or not doing something that he does want to do as Paul mentions and says that he struggled with. He's not talking about a time when we fall into some particular sin. This can happen to any believer at any time. He's not talking about those times where we might fall into sin because when we face temptation, we don't take the way out. Which, by the way, God says He always provides. He's not referring to those sins that we stumble into in moments of weakness when we're not living in the power of the Spirit. That happens to us. That happens to the believer. What James is talking about here is a strong attraction or, if you will, an intimate relationship with the world. A friend of the world is an enemy of God. You cannot be a friend of God and a friend of the world. And that's why I believe that this is all directed at the unbeliever. Listen to some of these verses. Colossians 1.21 And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Do you hear what he said? And you who once were alienated. The past tense, you were alienated at one time. But as a, Christ, as a follower of Christ, you are no longer alienated. You are no longer an enemy of God. Romans 5.10, For if while we were enemies, again, were, past tense, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more that we are, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. We were enemies of God. For those of us today who are believers in Christ, we were enemies of God. Now we are friends of God. 
Even in James, look back a couple of chapters, James 2.23 says, And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. When Abraham believed, he was called a friend of God. Not before he believed, but when he believed. Okay? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us that no one can serve two masters. You cannot, on one hand, affirm love for God, and then on the other hand, affirm love for the world. It's not possible. As believers, we may stumble into the world and we may fall into sin, but we will not love it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.12, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. The very design of the new nature gives us the Spirit of God, not the Spirit of the world. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I have been crucified with Christ. A death has taken place at salvation. A death to the world. One more verse before we move on. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or the things of the world, which means you are an enemy of God. Sorry. I jumped down in my notes. Let me read that again. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So here it is. Our true test of the faith today. Are you a friend of the world? Which means you're an enemy of God. Or are you a friend of God? You don't want to be an enemy of God. How do we identify an enemy of God? For some, it's blatantly obvious. There are people, you know, I know, who are overtly, who live overtly lives that are godless or they overtly reject Christ. But then there are those who apparently look like maybe they don't hate God. Maybe they love God. You know these people too. They might have a certain visible morality. They have some knowledge of the revelation of the truth. They possess maybe a certain form of worship. They may even have been apparently successful in some religious enterprises. They may even feel badly about their sins. Churches today are filled with those kind of people as they were in the time of the New Testament when James wrote this letter. James is confronting the same issue here. The enemies of God may be known because they are lovers of the world. That's how you can identify them. And again, I come back to what I said earlier. Friendship with the world in verse 4 it might sound like a Christian sin, but it can't be. It can't be a Christian sin here that James has in mind. 
We can be drawn to the world as believers. We can do worldly things. We can entertain ourselves with worldly activities. We can have a certain desire to enter into worldly sins. But we are not lovers of the world. This is what John MacArthur had to say about this. He said, we are, as believers, by definition, lovers of God. It's one thing to do worldly things, to follow worldly patterns, to think worldly thoughts while loving God, but it's quite another thing to have a settled, deep affection for the world. That makes one an enemy of God, and no Christian is an enemy of God. We might say, in terms of where James is writing, that he has in mind professing Christians. Notice the use of the word professing. People who attach themselves outwardly to the covenant people of God, namely the church. They apparently maintain some interest, some verbal commitment to God and to Christ, and yet they hold a deep affection for the evil system which Jesus said in the parable of the soils, chokes out the gospel before they can ever be saved and bear fruit. And they then become like the wicked adulterous Jews of Israel who were unfaithful to God. MacArthur goes on to say, it's a great term for people who attach themselves to the church, who attach themselves to Christianity, but then with their tremendous consuming love for the world, give nothing to God and give themselves wholly to the world and thus are adulteresses. That's what he has in mind. There's no, there is really no middle point. One is either the faithful friend of God or his enemy, either a faithful lover of God or an adulteress. Jesus said, he that is not with me is what? Against me. So this brings us to verse 5. If you've spent any time in James chapter 4, you looked at verse 5, you'll know that it poses some problems. This verse has baffled scholars and it's really interesting when you put various English translations side by side, you see how they vary in result. Now, I'm not a scholar. I'm not a Greek scholar. I'm not a scholar of any kind. So I'm not going to pretend that I've got this figured out. And I don't think that we need to be so dogmatic to say that it's one way or the other. But I'm going to give you kind of two options that are possibilities and then kind of tell you where I land on this. And this next bit that I'm going to share for a few minutes um, comes from the IVP commentary on James, and it lays these two possibilities out. Now, the difficulty comes because it appears, as you read this verse, that James is quoting a verse from the Old Testament. The problem is that there is no specific verse in the Old Testament that says this. So, The commentary here says we would be helped in determining the meaning if a definite Old Testament origin could be identified. That would make it easy. But there's not one. Um, And so in the absence of a definite reference, two major understandings have kind of been proposed out of all this. One is that the subject of the clause in the sentence is spirit. Small s, pneuma, Um, taken to mean the human spirit which God caused to live in us from creation. This is the spirit that envies intensely. 
So James is reminding his readers that human nature tends toward the envy and jealousy about which he's been warning since back up in chapter 3, verse 14. The arguments for this are kind of threefold. Linguistically, James is saying literally that this spirit yearns to jealousy. Now, the verb there for yearn is never applied to God anywhere else in Scripture. And the noun for jealousy is consistently negative when it shows up in other instances. From a context standpoint, um, a reference to human envy would be consistent with what James has already said and already emphasized in this passage. And then logically, the next verse, um, verse 6, makes another scriptural reference to Proverbs 3.34 talking about God gives grace to the humble, this would provide a logical contrast saying that God gives grace to overcome the human tendency towards envy. Okay, that's one possibility. The other is that the subject of the verb is the understood he, meaning God, referring to God, and that the object of God's yearning is the spirit that he's put to live in us. The arguments for that are that, <clears throat> sorry, let me back up. It, the meaning there then would be that God jealously desires us to belong wholeheartedly to him. Okay, and that's how, that's how the ESV even reads. That's what I, what I read. That's kind of the, what it tends towards. Arguments for that, there's two terms, there's two terms for envy in the Greek. Um, sometimes they're interchangeable and one of them is used elsewhere for God, and so the argument is that this could apply to him, um, and that James is using this as kind of a stylistic contrast. Hang with me, I'm almost done with this part. Um, contextually, an emphasis on God's jealousy for righteousness in us is, is also equally consistent with what James has emphasized earlier in the letter. And then logically, a reference to God's jealousy kind of fits um, the flow of thought as well, and so, you know, how does God, how does friendship with the world make me an enemy of God? Um, God's following this up with grace to the humble, um, which protects us from being overwhelmed by God's jealousy. Okay, if you checked out there, check back in. I know that was, I wanted to say that because I know some of you, that would really, you'd kind of geek out over some of that. But anyway, here's the bottom line that you need to take away from that. This verse is likely either saying that the spirit that God caused to live within us envies and manifests itself in selfishness and malice or that God jealously longs for the spirit that is within us. Okay. Now, on the jealousy side of things for God, this is what it's not saying. This is not some kind of insecure jealousy that's afraid that we're going to find something better in the world. Okay, God, this is an infinitely good jealousy because God knows that everything that is in him is much more satisfying than anything we could ever find in the world. So those are the two likely alternatives. I lean towards the first one simply because it falls in line with the way that I see the rest of this passage as being directed towards the unbeliever. 
Now when James mentions that the scripture says, even though this does not point to a specific Old Testament passage, it does point to a composite of what the Old Testament teaches. And so James is just talking generally. Do you think that the scripture says for no reason that man naturally has within him a spirit that is bent on evil? He could have had in mind a lot of different passages from the Old Testament. And so he's speaking generally. Do you not understand that this is what the scriptures say? Now as we move on from that, let's recap kind of what we've covered so far. James says, here's the test. Do you love the world? If you, if you love the world, you're in conflict with it. If you're, you're in conflict with yourself, and worse than that, you're in conflict with God. He's your enemy. You have disregarded his scriptural diagnosis of your condition and you just go on blissfully following your own desires and as a result, you forfeit grace because grace comes only to the humble. And this is what he goes on to say in verse 6. But he, God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, again, a quotation from Proverbs 3.34, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. There is hope. There is hope for the unbeliever. It is called grace. There is grace. There is forgiveness. There is an absence of conflict with God, an absence of conflict with self, an absence of conflict with others. But it's all wrapped up in a relationship to God that is defined as loving friendship. So on the one hand, you have friendship with the world. On the other, you have friendship with God. So for us as believers, if you're a believer here in the room this morning or you're listening online, this means we are the enemy of the world. So James again is saying here, as he's done throughout this letter, do the inventory again. Are you in love with the world? Are you in conflict with everybody? Are you in conflict with yourself? Are you in conflict with God? If you are, he says, do this. What does he say to do? Look at verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. We're going to start to wrap this up, but as we do, please do not miss what James is saying in these last verses. If you are sitting in this room this morning or you're listening online and you find yourself in conflict with the world, with others, and most importantly with God, there is hope for you today. Because God is a God of grace. As we just read, He gives grace to the humble. So how do we humble ourselves? I've mentioned this before, uh, but I'll say it again. Throughout this letter, James gives about 50 different pointed commands. And in these four verses, he gives 10. And so we're going to look through these 10 commands commandments if you will that James gives these aren't in I don't believe a a sequential order although I will suggest that the first one must happen before the others can fall into place and so 
Let's walk through these. Number one, submit yourself to God. You must come under His authority. If He speaks, if God speaks, which He has through His Word, are you willing to obey? Jesus calls us to take up our cross daily and follow Him. It is a total self-denial. A total denial of self. Submit yourself to God. Secondly, he says, resist the devil. Here, either you are under the lordship of Satan or you are under the lordship of Christ. There's no middle ground. It's one or the other. You don't get to take Jesus as Savior and then hope that He becomes Lord over time. You have to take your stand against Satan and everything that he stands for. Submitting yourself to God and resisting the devil. But notice what else it says. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's a promise. An amazing promise. Submit yourself to God and resist the devil. Command number three, draw near to God. This is something that was originally associated with the priestly functions. And we'll see, a, see this in a number of these commands, connections back to the, kind of the Jewish ceremonial practices and processes. Because remember, he's writing to a Jewish audience so he's connecting with them. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near, draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Draw near to God, and what does it say? He will draw near to you. Again, another promise. Great promise. Command number four, cleanse your hands. The priests had to wash their hands as a part of the ceremonial cleansing process as they would go into the tabernacle or the temple Isaiah 59.2 says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He does not hear. A cleansing of the hands is a symbol of behavior, an outward action. And notice what he says here, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. He doesn't beat around the bush again with his use of language. And I think that this is one thing that we're guilty of um, in the church today of sometimes softening some of the wordage that we use. We talk about people and their brokenness. And there is some truth to that. We are, we are broken people. But as James does, and I think as we should do, let's call it what it is. Sin. We are sinners. Everyone in this room is a sinner. Those of us who are followers of Christ, we are sinners saved by grace. But we are sinners. And James's command here, sinner, cleanse your hands. 
fifth command, and this one's closely connected, purify your heart. Whereas the hands are symbolic of outward behavior and action, this has to do with the inward dimension. The call of God is for a transformed heart. Psalm 24.3 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. We sang about it earlier. Give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to another. And again, he uses strong language here. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Again, this is a reference back to what he's already said back in chapter 1. Double-minded people. People who attempt to be friends with God while they are friends of the world. And it's simply not possible. You can't do it. Sixth command, James says to be wretched. Not really a pleasant thought. What it literally means is to feel totally miserable. This is deep penitential sorrow over sin. And I think what James is saying here, I think he's saying you have to feel worse before you get better. You have to recognize the sin in your life. And it has to wreck you. Be wretched, he said. And then he says to mourn. Mourning is a grief that makes the heart ache. Have you ever mourned over your sin? If you're wretched, if you're miserable, you will mourn. And then he says to weep. A person who comes to Christ isn't just someone who signs a card and makes an emotional response. It's a person who is overwhelmed with the sense of their wretchedness before a holy God due to their sinfulness and whose inner spirit is in deep mourning and grief which leads to weeping. 6, 7, and 8 are all linked together. Misery is a recognition of the sinful state that we find ourselves in. Mourning is how the spirit then responds and weeping is how the body responds. It's, it's this inner sorrow that's working its way out. Think about Peter. Mark fourteen seventy two. immediately the rooster crowed a second time and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. What does it say Peter did? He broke down. And he wept. 2 Corinthians 7.10 Paul says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. So be wretched. Mourn, James says. Weep over your sin. Number nine, he says, let laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. 
Laughter, interestingly here, is a word that's not used anywhere else in Scripture. And it indicates the laughter of people indulging in their desires and pleasures. It's the laughter of fools who reject God. It pictures people who give no thought to God, or at least no serious thought to God. No thought to life, death, sin, judgment, or holiness. James is saying here, stop it. Stop getting caught up in the world and turn your laughter into mourning. Why? Because you see your sin. And then he says, turn your joy into gloom. Gloom means shame, sorrow, a downcast look on the face, hanging the face in shame. You remember what uh, Jesus said in Luke 18 when he, he told the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The tax collector with his head bowed, looking down, beat on his chest and cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said that man went home justified. Why? He had turned his laughter into mourning. His joy had become gloom because he was overwhelmed with his own sin. He cried out to God in repentance, asking for mercy because he recognized his sin. Lamentations 5.15 says, The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. And then lastly, number 10. He says, humble yourself before the Lord. This is probably a familiar passage for many, but I want you to listen to this from Isaiah chapter 6. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah cried out, Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I am lost. Why did he cry out? He said it himself. He said, My eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. As you see God, you will humble yourself. Now, as we've been walking through James and studying this letter, we see that James is confronting a people who are made up 
obviously, of, listen to this, possessors of eternal life, those who have eternal life, and professors of eternal life. In other words, those who really know God and those who are just deceived and deceiving. Those who are possessors of true and living faith and those who are possessors of a false, dead faith. And James is calling here for a saving faith. This is a a beautiful invitation that James gives in the middle of this letter to a people who are lost, who are living in deception. A calling to submit their lives to God, to humble themselves before the Lord. Do you notice how he ended verse 10? Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. People who live with a false faith seek to exalt exalt themselves. And James is saying, humble yourself and let God do the exalting. Let Him lift you up. Where are you at today? Are you a friend of God? Or are you a friend of the world? Are you playing a good game? Are you someone that maybe has grown up in the church? You're here every week. Maybe you serve in some capacity. but you still love the world. You're playing a good game, but you're living with a false faith. And James is saying, submit. Submit yourself to God. We're going to kind of end our service in a slightly different way this morning came across a song um, a few weeks back. It's a new Christmas song from Sovereign Grace Music. And I asked Mark if he could learn it and, and play it. And he willingly agreed. And I've asked him just to sing this over us this morning as an invitation, an invitation to come. The title of the song is, O Come All You Unfaithful. Christ is born for you. Would you come and see what God has done for you? And would you submit this morning? If you're here in the room, I'd love to talk to you. Doke would love to talk to you. If you're listening online, today is the day. The invitation is open to come. God is a God of grace. And James has reminded us that he gives more grace. And he gives more grace. And there is grace available to you today. 
Would you humble yourself before God? Let's pray. Father God, what a challenging portion of Scripture where James again does not beat around the bush. But he calls those who are far from God adulterous people, sinners, double-minded